Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. In this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond, our guest is Taylor Schumann. A survivor of the April 2013 shooting at a college in Christiansburg, Virginia, Taylor graciously shares with us about her journey toward healing, how her trauma has shaped her relationship with God and with others, and how we can join her in working toward a cultural shift regarding gun violence. Taylor is a writer and activist whose writing has appeared in Christianity Today, Sojourners, and Fathom. She is a contributor to the book, If I Don't Make It, I Love You, Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shootings. In our conversation, Taylor also discusses her upcoming InterVarsity Press book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. We hope you'll find this episode both challenging and encouraging, as Taylor candidly offers her story with wisdom and grace. Well, thank you so much, Taylor, for being a guest on the podcast today. Could you begin by sharing a little bit about your faith and vocation journey and how that has shaped who you are today? So I grew up going to church with my family, super involved in church, you know, got saved at a really young age. So it's always just, my faith has always been a important part of my life. And I think that it encouraged my sort of natural desire to help people, like Mm -hmm. just wanting to love people and, and help them in my vocation. So I studied human services in college and after college, took a job with social services. And then I ended up community college, helping out with a distance education program and students that had disabilities and different learning needs. Yeah. So I think that my faith always informed kind of how I wanted Mm. to be, what kind of person I wanted to be, what kind of job I wanted to do as I got older. Nice. And now you are a writer. Yes. So how did you get from that part of life to writing. Yeah. Yeah. So I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to like end up writing books and I had a blog ever since you could like have a blog online. You know, I started with the like live journal and like Zanga. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, you know, as soon as I could write words on the internet, I was doing that and, you know, all through college and work, I would, you know, write like little devotionals and things like that on my blog. And yeah, so when I uh, was working for the community college and I experienced, you know, the shooting there, I think I just started walking through this season of life where I felt really isolated with what I was going through. I didn't know people that had gone through what I went through. And I found a lot of healing and solace in writing about my experience in hopes that it might reach someone else who is feeling Mm -hmm. similarly to me. So I think that vein of just really wanting to help others, even with my words, like just being able to say, oh, wow, I feel that way sometimes too. I think that's so important. And I think that's one way, you know, online writing and any writing and like social media is really helpful to people. It can just like bring people together who might not otherwise be able to find each other or find someone who's walking a similar path as them. So yeah, I kind of shifted from like a traditional workplace job to writing at home, writing articles and ultimately writing this book. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about that. 
I love how even in all of those different sort of spheres, that thread of connecting with others and having your faith inform your desire to love and connect with others is just kind of woven throughout, even though they're very different things. So as you mentioned, you recently wrote the book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. Can you share a little bit more about how this book came to be, as well as the significance of the title? Sure. Yeah. So like I said, after the shooting, I spent a lot of time writing online and kind of documenting my story. And I did that in my own personal journals as well. And that's how I found a lot of healing and kind of learned a lot about myself and what I was going through. And I really wanted to be able to share that with other people and be able to talk about in a kind of long form way, all the things that I had been learning, all the things God had done in my life for me as a bit of a testimony. Mm. And I also wanted to walk through this kind of journey I went on with my opinions and beliefs about guns and gun violence and how best to approach that subject. What is helpful? What's not helpful? What do we know? What questions do we have? And talk to people about how to have those conversations in their own lives, because I think it's really difficult and it's really intimidating. And Mm -hmm. if I could kind of take my own personal experience and connect people with that, because most people don't know someone personally who has experienced gun violence, and it's much easier to kind of ignore that subject when you haven't been confronted with it. So providing people sort of an access point to the topic of gun violence and gun reform with my personal story, mm-hmm. I think is really powerful. And it's the way we connect to a lot of issues, right? That don't sure, typically yeah. affect us personally. So kind of giving that introduction to the topic and then sharing the things that helped me evolve spiritual things faith things, things I learned uh, reading scripture, things that other people helped me learn. And yeah, I just really wanted to kind of compile all that in a book. And the title, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, it's, you know, that has become a really familiar refrain in our world, you know, after Mm -hmm. mass shootings specifically, but a lot of different types of mass violence, we hear the words, you know, we're sending our thoughts and prayers specifically from you know, political leaders, sure, yeah, people in power. And a lot of people like say things to me about, oh, do you not want prayer? Are you just like giving people who pray a hard time? And of course not. I love prayer. I appreciate prayer. Like I, I firmly believe in the power of prayer and that, you know, how I survived and how I was able to heal. And, you know, I, I credit a lot of that to people who prayed for me, but I do have a problem with people who use prayer as an excuse for not confronting the realities of what gun violence is in our country, especially people who are in power, who mm-hmm. have much more power than you or I do right. to affect change and to talk about that. And it's just become just such an empty, hollow phrase that people use. Like I talk about in the book, thinking about things is good. Praying about things mm-hmm. is good. But those aren't where we end. That's where we start. We can always start with praying about something, but that's never the extent of what we can do. And so this book just really explores the idea that, yeah, of course, we're going to pray about gun violence and we're going to pray about suffering. But what does God give us the power to do in this world Mm -hmm. as human beings who are, you know, called by God to live in this world? 
and help people and love our neighbors. What can that look like once we have prayed? What more is there for us to do? So yeah, prayer and thinking are both (laughs) starting points, not the end points. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you used the word powerful earlier about like just hearing other stories, people who we might not otherwise be connected with, the power of hearing sort of that testimony or that witness to God's work in your life, but also even just witness to the suffering that you've experienced. And I greatly appreciated how candidly you wrote about your experience and the gravity of that loss and pain that you've endured and continue to endure, I'm sure, since the shooting in not just physical ways, but physically, spiritually, mentally. Can you share a little bit about how your faith has been shaped by the suffering you've experienced? Yeah, I think I didn't have a lot of context for how to believe in God and follow him and worship him and be thankful while going through something so horrible and something that I did not choose or expect. And not that I hadn't been through anything hard in my life, I had, but, you know, I think a lot of what I believed about God was that if I did the right things and went to church and prayed and tithed and believed and all these things, then things would just kind of turn out okay for me. And that's a very limited way of Mm -hmm. looking at God and believing in him. And so to be confronted with this life-altering event that I had to accept would kind of change the course of my life forever and still believe in the goodness of God and his faithfulness to take care of me and to sustain me, that was all new for me. And Mm -hmm. I had to learn how to say, wow, I am so angry that this happened to me. This is so hard and this is not what I expected but can I still believe that God is good? And can I still believe that he loves me even while I'm walking through this? And I had to kind of learn about God and learn about my faith through a whole different lens. And I'm so thankful that I did because I think it's just so expanded my worldview and how I relate to people and how I can love other people who just feel broken and feel unseen a lot of the time. And that, you know, our power to be healed or successful or, you know, any of these kind of things we hold up, it's so not about our faith or lack of faith. And God is still with us and still present in all of that. And I think that that's greatly how it's shaped my faith. And I think learning to see God in that way has helped me not only love him more, but love other people more. Yeah. And that leads me right into the next question I wanted to ask. In addition, right to the way that your relationship with God was changed, the way that you saw your faith through a different lens. I'm curious about how your relationship with others shifted as well. And one sentence in the book struck me so much as I read it. You wrote about the relational effects of the shooting. You wrote, I found myself joining a club of shooting survivors who lived all of their days like this long before I did despite the fact that we strongly oppose adding new members, since none of us want to be in this club in the first place, our membership number goes up every day. Can you share just a little bit about how your relationships with others have changed? What is it like for you to be, unfortunately, in that club that you talk about? Yeah, so I think I mentioned this earlier, but kind of in the beginning, in the sort of immediate days and months after, I felt really lonely 
and really isolated because I had an amazing family. I was engaged at the time. The shooting happened about six weeks before I got married. I had a lot of supportive friends. Like I was not alone. I had a lot of physical support and emotional support, but I was alone in my experience because no one else walked through what I did. No one else was in that room with me. No one else experienced the physical pain that I did had the memories I did. So things like having flashbacks or waking up in the middle of the night with nightmares, that was only me. I was alone in that. And I felt very alone in that because even when, you know, my husband would try to talk to me about it or someone else, ultimately I just was like, no one gets this. It No <laughs> one can understand. And that was really lonely. It was really hard. And I remember kind of like, Googling in the middle of the night, like shooting survivors support group and, mm-hmm. you know, nothing came up and it kind of amazed me that with the numbers of gun violence that we experience in America every day, that there wasn't something like that, that I could find, you know, like local to me anyway. And I sure. just thought, I know there are other people like me out there. How do we find each other? And I ended up through my counselor going to a support group with other people that she counseled who had experienced kind of violent public crime. So it wasn't necessarily all shooting survivors. We'd all been through very different things, but I was able to relate to that group of people in a way that I couldn't relate to most of my friends or my family. And that's kind of when I learned that the process of like a trauma, a tragedy, grief, all those sorts of things they're familiar for lots of different experiences and the road to healing and recovery is the same in a lot of ways. And Mm -hmm. I could relate to a lot of different people, not just people who'd been through shootings. So I think it became really important to me to find people like that, that I could talk to and relate to. So I wasn't putting that pressure on like my husband and my friends because I didn't want them to have had experienced being shot or gun violence, but I desperately needed someone who could understand or sit with me in a way that those people couldn't. And the more I tried to put that on them, the harder it was to like stay friends with people or to love Mm -hmm. the people around me because I felt this bitterness of like, you didn't have to go through it. I'm the only one that had to go through it and you don't get it. So finding you know, things like support groups. And then I found a great online support group for shooting survivors that was started by some of the students who survived the Columbine shooting. And that was really powerful for me too, just to kind of see, wow, people have been dealing with this for a long time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to find each other and support each other. And then the other way I think it's affected my relationships is really positive too, because as hard Mm -hmm. as it was for me to figure out how to navigate some of that, isolation I felt, it also made me a much better friend to my friends who have gone through really hard things since then. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about, you know, what is helpful when you're hurting and suffering, what is not helpful, things that are good to say, things that are not so good to say, you know, and just like to kind of take some of that pressure off of like feeling the need to do all the perfect things and say the perfect things. You know, Mm -hmm. I was able to experience that most of the time. I just needed someone to like see what I was going through and say, Mm -hmm. wow, I'm so sorry. That sucks. 
you know, that's enough. That can be enough. And so, yeah, I hope and pray that I've been able to be that person for other people better than I, I was before this happened to me. So for all the kind of hard difficulties I had with the relationships, I do think that God has really used a lot of that to show me this is how you can be in relationship with people who are going through really hard things. And I'm really thankful for that. Yeah, it's that sort of ministry of presence, so to speak, yeah. right? Where you, sometimes you just want to be seen and yeah. have someone sit beside you and say, yeah, this sucks. Yeah, That makes me think about Jesus and his ministry as well, right? In that same way of just seeing people mm-hmm. um, and their pain and yeah. being with them. Kind of along those same lines, I also really appreciated how openly you wrote about your own mental health and the value of seeing a counselor, which you just shared a little bit about as well with the support group too. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts that you could share with our listeners about this particular aspect of your healing, as well as maybe encouragement in breaking down the stigma regarding mental health. Yeah, it's so interesting because right after the shooting, I did not want to go see a counselor. I did not want to talk about it. I was like very afraid to do that. It was not something I felt like I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And my mom, you know, found a counselor through someone we know. And basically my mom and my husband like put me in the car and kidnapped me and took me to a counselor. (laughs) And I don't recommend that method for everyone, but for (laughs) me, it was very effective. And thankfully, you know, the first person I saw was just a total godsend. And I firmly believe Mm -hmm. like the Lord had that orchestrated behind the scenes because I was really afraid and um, Mm -hmm. she was amazing. And What's so interesting to me about looking back on that is that, you know, I was in the position where I didn't have to justify my need for mental health support. You know, it was just everyone assumed I needed it. Everyone was like, well, well, she got shot. Of course she needs to see a counselor or therapist. You know, of course she needs help. Yeah, we're going to help her get that help. And then as I talked to people who were there that day, who didn't have physical wounds to show Mm -hmm. what they went through. It was so hard for them to tell someone they needed help or to accept help because they didn't feel like they should need it. Mm -hmm. And it just devastated me thinking about all the people that probably really needed support and help, but didn't like felt like they were taking resources from someone else, like felt like they shouldn't need the help. And I think I look back on that and I still think I felt like I had to justify to people why I needed counseling or why I needed mm. antidepressants or things like that. And, you know, I think that we still, even those of us who are really pro therapy and, you know, really want to get rid of the stigma, like you talk about, I think sometimes we still have that internal struggle of like, well, maybe if I pray enough or maybe if mm. I you know, do X, Y, or Z, I shouldn't need this. I won't need this. But what I learned from counseling is like a good counselor is a gift from the Lord. This is such a gift to be able to talk to someone, to be able to get help and to ask for help and for someone to offer what we need. And I think that we're getting to a place in society where people feel open talking about their mental health and talking about how wonderful counseling can be and how wonderful therapy can be. I really see that, especially with my generation, the generations coming up, I think Mm -hmm. it's much more valued than it used to be. And I know that I am the person I am today and have been able to walk through what I've been through because I had mental health support. 
And because I had people, my counselor was a Christian counselor to be able to tell me that things like anxiety and depression and PTSD and, you know, nightmares and flashbacks and all these things, they are not a personal moral failing Mm. is just something I'm experiencing and God is still in it. And I don't need to try to be perfect or fix myself or feel like I have to justify to anyone why I need help. I just need help and Mm. that's okay. And that's what I would tell to anyone else who feels maybe afraid to seek out mental health support. Like we all need someone to talk to and someone to ask questions to and ask for guidance. We all need that. I think it would be a much better world if we all just (laughs) had someone to talk to, you know, to be honest with and open with. And I think like the biggest barrier to that, especially in kind of Christian circles, is just accepting that the need for that is not because of a lack of faith or because Mm -hmm. we're not good enough or we didn't try hard enough. But counseling and medication, all these things can be tools that God gives us to be present in our body. And they can be acts of worship. They can help us love God and love others. And there's nothing bad or negative about that. Those are all good things. That's such a powerful word about not seeing it as a failure in your faith to need mental health support. And I love how you phrased it as like the hand of God orchestrating, leading along with the kidnapping, right? Oh, sure, of course. <laughs> leading you to the right person for yeah. your journey. So I'm yeah. glad that that's been such a good gift in your life. So kind of shifting then to the second part of your book, which moves from your personal story to societal challenge. Do you discuss the tension that you feel about lockdown drills in schools and about the importance of being prepared for the worst to happen, but also wondering how these drills are impacting children and adults? And you wrote about how you felt after your experience. You wrote, when I was sitting in that room, hiding from a shooter, trying to stop my own bleeding, I felt so unprepared and so unqualified to be dealing with it. I didn't want that for anyone else. And I felt that if school shootings were just going to keep happening, then people should be prepared. But then later in that chapter, you also wrote, we have a substantial lack of research to prove that active shooter drills for students do anything beyond traumatizing kids and inform potential shooters of protocols. Can you share a bit more about your thoughts on this tension? Yeah. So when I took the job at the community college, I remember having to kind of click through like an online active shooter training. Mm -hmm. And so in the moment when the shooting was happening, I was thinking, wow, I wish I remembered more of what I learned in active shooter training. And I just felt like, how am I supposed to know what to do right now? Like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. And so after, after the shooting, I remember like a local school district in partnership with a local police department was doing a extra active shooter training for teachers where they could, they would learn how to like bandage wounds, how to take care of, you know, gunshot wounds, how to Mm -hmm. make tourniquets and stop blood and all that. And I remember thinking, well, that's a great idea. Like, of course, teachers should be prepared. To me, it felt like the people opposing those things just didn't want to confront the reality that this was possible. And it made me really angry because I thought, well, I didn't think I needed to be prepared, but I did. And this can happen to anyone and we should all be prepared. So for me, it was almost out of this feeling for me that I lacked any control over Mm -hmm. the situation. And I just thought, 
Well, what people need is to know what to do so they can feel in control. And I didn't know at the time about a lot of the active shooter drill techniques that take place in America. I didn't know that there are schools that have police come in and shoot blanks. insane. Yeah. Sorry. To no, it is. And, and like to that. put like fake gunshot wounds on people or it's like not tell the teachers that it's a drill and not a real shooter. You know, I didn't know about any of that. And I didn't know that there are kids that are being really traumatized by these drills, kids that cry when they go to school because they don't want, you know, a shooter to come in and kill them at school. Kids who are asking their parents, there's people that get killed at school. Am I going to get killed at school? Kids that are like not sleeping or who are so afraid they're going to the bathroom in the middle of the school day in their desk chair because they're so afraid someone's Mm -hmm. going to come in and shoot them. And teachers as well, like the adults Mm -hmm. that work in the school. I think it's easy to forget how hard this is on adults. And, you know, teachers who were saying, we need you to teach our kid multiplication tables, but we also need you to use your body as a shield if someone comes in with a gun and this weight that we're placing on teachers. I didn't know about all that. So of course, to me, the right thing to do felt like, yeah, prepare them for anything. And, you know, what I said in the book is true. We don't have any research that these drills are that effective or really effective at all when it comes to an active shooter in a school. What we do know is that we're spending a lot of money and a lot of resources on these programs that cost school systems thousands and thousands of dollars, equipment that schools are purchasing now. Like this is a billion dollar industry and Mm -hmm. we don't know that any of it actually works. And what we do know is that money that can go into violence prevention programs and communities, you know, things like after school programs and intervention programs, we know that stuff can help reduce gun violence. So I think it's a way we can feel in control and we can feel like we're doing something by instituting these active shooter drills without kind of acknowledging that it's probably not working and it's probably just traumatizing generations of students that will go out into the world kind of carrying this with them and this fear with them. When we could be saying, what do we know that works and putting money into those places? But it's hard to shift that when we're not seeing, people aren't going to see like a return on investment in their local violence prevention program because you don't know about what doesn't happen, right? So it's, it's so much harder to say, Yes, of course it works if we give, you know, a few thousand dollars to this and this. What people see is, oh, we're training our kids to be prepared for a shooter and that makes me feel good. And we're not really considering the long-term effects of that. So for me, that topic is really a prime example of something where I really thought I knew what I was talking about. And then I just learned a little more about it and I was able Mm -hmm. to say, wow, I was actually wrong about that. And that's okay. I know more now. And I think maybe this is better. Yeah, I appreciate that posture that we can sort of emulate, hopefully, to continue learning about things and find out more information because maybe what we thought we knew was right could be better. So kind of related to that, one of our last questions here, if listeners would like to get involved in ways that are more than thoughts and prayers to work toward change, both on a macro systemic level, as well as like a micro level, such as having conversations with friends, what would you suggest? Yeah, I think the first thing I would suggest is to not feel the pressure to know everything before you start engaging in these conversations. 
no one can know everything about a topic, especially when it's not like your main job. So it can be really intimidating to start a conversation about gun violence because you're thinking, well, what are they going to ask me? And maybe they'll ask me about this and I don't know the answer. And then they won't think I'm someone to listen to about this topic. So I think if we can adopt a posture of curiosity and humility and saying, I don't know everything about this, but this is what I think, or this is what I believe. I know that a lot of people are suffering. I think that maybe we should do something about gun laws. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And just an open conversation. And if someone asks you a question, you can just say, you know, I don't know. I don't know about that. I'll try to find out. We could talk again about it. Or, you know, I'm still learning too. I just think this. I think that can be really scary to like admit when we don't know something and to feel like we have to like have all the points of our debate lined up in our heads. And so I think we just, we've got to get over that. And I think if you're a parent of young kids or any kids, really a great way to kind of get into that is, you know, if your kids are going over to someone's house saying, Hey, before I send my kids to someone's house, I just always like to check. Do you have any guns in the home? And if you do, do you have them safely secured? It can feel a little uncomfortable and a little intimidating. And you just say, Hey, I'm a parent and, you know, I care about safety. And I'm just curious, like if you have guns in the home, that can be a really kind of intro way to, Mm -hmm. to start a conversation about that. And I really encourage parents to do that because unfortunately we, we have a lot of cases of kids just having unsupervised access to guns and hurting someone with them. So I think just not being afraid is really powerful. We've spent a lot of time being too afraid to talk about it and it hasn't really gotten us anywhere. And my other tip is to assume the best about the person you're talking to. Mm -hmm. Even if you know you disagree, even if you have problems with their opinions, just going into the conversation, assuming that they also want to reduce suffering and maybe you're not going to see eye to eye on how to do that. But I think Mm -hmm. if we can start there, And I always tell people, you know, they have to earn it with me. (laughs) The more we talk, I might not end the conversation believing the best about them, but I think to at least start there can be really Mm -hmm. helpful to us and to not kind of go into it as enemies, I guess, is probably one of the most helpful things I do, especially after, you know, having some really bad conversations with people. It's for you really to say, okay, this is a worthy conversation. And then my last point that I remind myself all the time your one conversation is not going to end gun violence. Mm. So if you have a conversation that really doesn't go well and you're feeling really bad about it, feeling like you failed, guess what? The world was not hinging on that one conversation. Mm. You were just waiting in the waters. You planted a seed, you opened a door and it's not on you to solve the whole problem. We just need people who are willing to have the hard conversation. So not put so much pressure on ourselves to say all the perfect things and to change minds. We're never... Rarely, I don't want to say never, but you're rarely going to change someone's mind in the moment. You know, I, I don't think I've ever had a conversation where at the end of the person is like, wow, I've totally changed my mind and I really support gun reform now. You know, it's like all these little <laughs> seeds you plant with conversations and they're going to go home and, and think about it. And, you know, if the next time a shooting happens, they might have a different lens to view it through and they might ask themselves some new questions based on that conversation. So, you know, really just taking that that pressure off of ourselves to kind of solve all the world's problems with a couple conversations. Sure. And I love just the idea of a starting place being assuming the best about people and then curiosity and humility. And hopefully in the conversation that like curiosity and humility is contagious and the other yeah. person would also become curious and yeah. 
operating from a posture of humility of wanting to know versus thinking we know everything already. I don't think anyone enjoys being in a conversation with like a know-it-all. True. <laughs> you, know, you know, I don't, I feel that way. If I'm talking to someone and someone's acting like they know everything and I know nothing, that doesn't make yes. me feel very good or safe to ask questions. You know, mm-hmm. you, you need to be a safe person where people can feel comfortable saying, I'm not so sure about this. Can you help me? Or can we talk about it? That's really valuable. And I say this, I do not do this perfectly. Sometimes I am the know-it-all. Sometimes I can be you know, a little too forceful or a little too, you know, whatever. So I I speak to myself here as well. But, you know, I think just to be someone you would like to have a conversation with, I think. Yeah. So kind of then related the freedom that you mentioned, that freedom that your one single conversation isn't going to change the world. In some ways it sounds hopeless, but on the other hand, there's so much freedom in it, right? I loved the way you described it, planting a seed. It's not going to shift everything right in that moment. Then thinking about that more macro systemic level, do you have any thoughts on creating change in that space? Like even, I mean, I don't intend to get political here, but like Mm -hmm. reaching out to politicians or things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think one of the best things you can do is reach out to like your local politicians, you know, at at your state level. That's where we're seeing a lot of gun reform take place. That's where we're seeing a lot of, you know, laws that would kind of relax gun safety measures taking place too. Like we rarely see gun legislation at a federal level. We haven't Mm -hmm. in about 25 years, but gun laws are being passed in states regularly. So that's really where a lot of this is being done. If you are someone who's voting for people that are generally really pro-gun, really pro-Second Amendment, anti-gun safety laws, I would reach out to those people, call their office, write them a letter, let them know how you're feeling about that, and kind of push them to consider. Because what we know is that a majority of Americans, like about 97% of Americans, support things like expanded background checks and red flag laws. So if that many Americans support those measures and we still have politicians who do not support those things, then what we have is a representation issue where the people Mm -hmm. we're voting into office aren't actually representing their voters and their community members. And so I think kind of making your voice be heard is a good way to engage at that level, especially if you are voting for, you know, it's typically going to be a Republican who is anti-gun safety measures, just putting it out there that, They've got people that live in their area who do support gun safety, making your voice heard. I think it's important and it can feel like it doesn't actually matter. So doing that in conjunction with maybe donating money to a gun violence prevention organization, an organization who helps survivors, maybe you have a local organization that's doing that type of intervention. That can be a way to make yourself feel like you are actually doing something that you can see maybe in your community because both are important. And it's like important to give us a little boost of like, oh, I'm doing something that matters. I can maybe see the result of this. I can see my money going to one of these groups. So I think doing a little bit of both. And then, you know, if you're someone who is involved in a local church, asking your pastor or someone at church, if you can do something to engage in the community. There are some really great movies that I've seen, churches screen, some documentaries. I write about those in my book. One really good one called The Armor of Light, you know, and just maybe starting a conversation at church about the gun violence in your community and and how you can kind of walk through that. I had never seen gun violence talked about in church until my husband Mm -hmm. and I were at a, we were going to a Methodist church back when we lived in Tennessee 
and we went one day and they had a little you know section in their bulletin you know we're going to screen this documentary and talk about gun violence you know I just started crying like in the middle mm-hmm. of the church service ah. because it wasn't a political statement it was just like hey we see this need in the community and we're followers of Jesus and we can maybe help here and bring some awareness and so I think anything like that can be can be really beneficial Well, and I'll add to that. I think, am I right? In the advanced reader copy, there's discussion questions. Were there discussion questions? Yeah, there's a discussion guide. At the end of your book. Yes. So Taylor's book is a fantastic resource (laughs) that like a small group could read together or a church group could read together and discuss all the questions at the end. So you're pointing us to these movies and things. And I'm like, but what about your book? (laughs) That's true. I'm not used to promoting my own work, I guess. So I need to work on that. But yes, there's a discussion question guide at the end of the book, you know, meant to help groups kind of talk about through some of these things. And because what I really hope for here and what a lot of people kind of doing the same work I do is, of course, I want laws and gun safety laws to get through and create more, more safety with those things. But I also want a cultural shift where we're considering human beings and kind of what guns have been doing in our country above the love of guns and the right to own guns. I think that cultural shift is going to be important. We need a culture that's willing to say, I'm willing to give up something I like or something that makes me feel good or a right that I have. I'm willing to kind of open my hands a little bit if that means that we can make this country a safer place for people to thrive and to live. And I think that's just as important as our quest for laws or systemic change as well. Yeah, absolutely. Can I add in another quick question then too, just before we get to the last one? So kind of related to these ways of making change or creating change, where are you finding hope these days? I think one thing that has been really encouraging to me, we've had a lot of shootings in the news lately. And after a couple of them, I just felt so tired of feeling like I had to comment or say the right things or almost like capitalize on the attention people were giving to gun violence. And I remember kind of logging on to Twitter one day and seeing all these people that had followed me for a long time, who I've had some really good conversations with that I respect talking about gun violence and commenting on things and pointing out, you know, what we need to do and that this is a problem and that, you know, we, we can speak up and we can do things and sharing, you know, statistics about gun violence. And it made me feel so encouraged that people are listening and learning, and then they are kind of taking the torch, if you will, and running with it into their spaces, into the people that follow them, the people that they have influence over, the people that they're in community with. That was really encouraging to me because that's not something I used to see a lot. I kind of felt like the lone voice, you know, out in the wilderness, kind of screaming about gun violence in all these ways. But then, you know, I see, wow, people are learning and people are seeing and they're willing to talk about it. And that's what we need. We need more people to kind of take this up as an issue for them and something that they are passionate about. And then, you know, I get messages. I read your early copy of your book, or I read a post you made and it really helped me see something. And, you know, I understand this better. And those little things, because like we were saying before, it can feel like this massive issue that's so out of our hands and that we feel so powerless to do anything with, but people are listening and they're learning and they care. And the more people that we can impact 
with information and personal stories and connection, those are people that can take that into their spaces and help make changes too. I have to have hope that we can change things and improve things. I just have to. And some days it can be really hard to, but you know, I have to live in this world for hopefully a long time. And, you know, I have a son who's two and a half and he just got here and his life is already affected by gun violence and he doesn't even know it yet. And I just think if we're expecting our little people, our kids to grow up in this world, we have to have hope that it can change and that they won't have to experience it like I did or like we we do right now. Yeah. So what's the point if we don't have have hope and we're called by God to have hope and he sustains us with hope when I feel like I've got nothing left. And that's where I come back to when I feel like throwing in the towel. Yeah. So hope in being seen by others and hope in God and hope is you hear others continue to speak up or start to speak up even. Yeah. You got me a little teary when you started talking about your son, because I I also, you know, I'm a parent. And when I think about our kids and even my children now, they're 13 and 11 and nine, talk about lockdown drills and things like that at school. It's just like, we have to, we have to do something to make this place better for them. So I'll stand with you in hope. Yeah. 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 So thank you, Taylor, for taking the time to share with us your own story and even to just urge us towards something new, speaking up and giving us wisdom about how to do that well and pointing us also back to the hope that we have in God. And finally, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote or scripture or song or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? Can you share about why it resonates with you at this time? Yeah. So there's an album that came out, I think about two or three weeks ago, and it's called Faithful. And it's kind of a compilation of a lot of Christian female singers, you know, singing all these songs together. And it's really great. It's a lot of like Christian singers that I grew up listening to, like Amy Grant is on there and um, just, you know, a handful of women. And there's one song on there called The Detour. And Mm -hmm. I've just been listening to it kind of on repeat. It just talks a lot about how God has not forsaken us in our suffering. I think that's one of the lines, you know, I'm not forsaken in my suffering and that it's not God's unkindness to us when we feel alone or left behind, but that this road that we're walking on that may feel like a detour from what we saw for ourselves or hope for ourselves or what we thought we are owed in life. It's not a detour. It's the road that God has for us. He's not surprised by it. He's not confused by it. It's not a plan B. It's plan A. We're on plan A. Yeah. So the chorus, you know, is the detour is the road. And it's just been really encouraging to me you know, especially in a time where I'm kind of talking about my story a lot and getting ready to launch my book into the world, just remembering that, you know, none of this surprised God. He's with me in all of it and I'm where he wants me to be. And I think it's really powerful. So I've had that one on repeat, but the whole album is really good. I highly recommend it to everyone. It's really encouraging. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'd heard about it. It's called The Faithful Project. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And we'll link to that then in the show notes. I'd heard about it, but I have not yet listened to any of the songs. So I'll have to. It's so good. Yeah. Definitely listen to it. All right. I will. Yeah. So what's the date on your book coming out? 
July 20th. Okay, July 20th. So this podcast will be up long before that. So people can pre-order it at yeah. University Press or or wherever yeah, local it's on, bookstores. Yeah, check your independent bookstore. It's at Barnes Noble, Target, Cushion Book, all those good places you order books. Nice. And I personally follow Taylor on Twitter and highly recommend that as well <laughs> because she's enjoyable in that space, not just talking about gun reform, but also just the daily life with. Yeah, we're doing funny stuff and unimportant stuff because that helps us, you know, get rested up for the bigger important issues we have to talk about. It all matters. It That's all matters. Right. Yes. Yeah. And God is not surprised by any of it, right? As yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Taylor. It's been a real joy to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, conversations with women in the Academy and beyond. Information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.